Chapter Four of the Invasion by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Four, Bombardment of London. Day broke. The faint flush of violet away eastward beyond Temple Bar gradually turned rose, heralding the sun's coming, and by degrees the streets, filled by excited Londoners, grew lighter with the dawn. Fevered night thus gave place to day, a day that was, alas, destined to be one of bitter memory for the British Empire. Alarming news had spread that Uhland had been seen reconnoitering in Snaresbrook and Wanstead, had ridden along Forest Road and Ferry Lane at Walthamstow through Tottingham High Cross, up High Street, Hornsby, Priory Road, and Muswell Hill. The Germans were actually upon London. The northern suburbs were staggered. In Fortis Green, North End, Highgate, Crouch End, Hampstead, Stamford Hill, and Leighton, the quiet suburban houses were threatened, and many people, in fear of their lives, had now fled southward into central London. Thus the huge population of Greater London was practically huddled together in the comparatively small area from Kensington to Fleet Street, and from Oxford Street to the Thames Embankment. People of Fulham, Putney, Wallam Green, Hammersmith, and Kew had, for the most part, fled away to the open country across Hounslow Heath to Bentham and Staines, while Tooting, Balham, Dulwich, Streatham, Norwood, and Catford had retreated farther south into Surrey and Kent. For the past three days thousands of willing helpers had followed the example of Sheffield and Birmingham and constructed enormous barricades obstructing at various points the chief roads leading from the north and east into London. Detachments of engineers had blown up several of the bridges carrying the main roads out eastwards, for instance the bridge at the end of Commercial Road east crossing the Limehouse Canal, while the six other small bridges spanning the canal between that point and the Bow Road were also destroyed. The bridge at the end of Bow Road itself was shattered, and those over the Hackney Cut at Marshall Hill and Hackney Wick were also rendered impassable. Most of the bridges across the Regent's Canal were also destroyed, notably those in Mare Street, Hackney, the Kingsland Road, and New North Road, while a similar demolition took place in Edgware Road and the Harrow Road. Londoners were frantic now that the enemy were really upon them. The accounts of the battles in the newspapers had, of course, been merely fragmentary, and they had not yet realized what war actually meant. They knew that all business was at a standstill, that the city was in an uproar, that there was no work, and that food was at famine prices. But not until German cavalry were actually seen scouring the northern suburbs did it become impressed upon them that they were really helpless and defenseless. London was to be besieged. This report having got about, the people began building barricades in many of the principal thoroughfares north of the Thames. One huge obstruction, built mostly of paving stones from the footways, overturned tramcars, wagons, railway trolleys, and barbed wire, rose in the Holloway Road just beyond Highbury Station. Another blocked the Caledonian Road a few miles north of the police station, while another very large and strong pile of miscellaneous goods, bales of wool and cotton stuffs, building material, and stones brought from the great northern railway depot, obstructed the Camden Road at the south corner 
of Hilldrop Crescent. Across High Street, Camden Town, at the junction of the Kentish Town and other roads, five hundred men worked with a will, piling together every kind of ponderous object they could pillage from the neighboring shops, pianos, iron bedsteads, wardrobes, pieces of calico and flannel, dress stuffs, rolls of carpets, floorboards, even the very doors wrenched from their hinges, until when it reached to the second-story window and was considered of sufficient height, a pole was planted on top, and from it hung limply a small Union Jack. The Finchley Road, opposite Swiss Cottage Station, in Shoot-Up Hill where Mill Lane runs into it, across Willesden Lane where it joins the High Road in Kilburn, the Harrow Road close to Willesden Junction Station, at the junction of the Goldhawk and Uxbridge Roads, across the Hammersmith Road in front of the hospital, other obstructions were placed with a view to preventing the enemy from entering London. At a hundred other points, in the narrower and more obscure thoroughfares, all along the north of London, busy workers were constructing similar defences, houses and shops being ruthlessly broken open and cleared of their contents by the frantic and terrified populace. London was in a ferment. Almost without exception the gunmakers' shops had been pillaged, and every rifle, sporting gun, and revolver seized. The armories at the Tower of London, at the various barracks, and the factory out at Enfield had long ago been cleared of their contents. For now, in this last stand, everyone was desperate, and all who could obtain a gun did so. Many, however, had guns but no ammunition. Others had sporting ammunition for service rifles, and others cartridges, but no gun. Those, however, who had guns and ammunition complete mounted guard at the barricades, being assisted at some points by volunteers who had been driven in from Essex. Upon more than one barricade in North London a maxim had been mounted, and was now pointed ready to sweep away the enemy should they advance. Other thoroughfares barricaded, besides those mentioned, were the Stroud Green Road, where it joins Hanley Road, the railway bridge in the Oakfield Road in the same neighborhood, the Whitefield Road opposite Haringey Station, the junction of Archway Road and Highgate Hill, the High Road Tottenham at its junction with West Green Road, and various roads around the New River Reservoirs which were believed to be one of the objectives of the enemy. These latter were very strongly held by thousands of brave and patriotic citizens, though the East London Reservoirs across at Walthamstow could not be defended, situated so openly as they were. The people of Leytonstow threw up a barricade opposite the schools in the high road, while in Wanstead a hastily constructed but perfectly useful obstruction was piled across Cambridge Park, where it joins the Blake Road. Of course all the women and children in the northern suburbs had now been sent south. Half the houses in those quiet, newly built roads were locked up and their owners gone, for as soon as the report spread of the result of the final battle before London, and our crushing defeat. People living in Highgate, Hampstead, Crouch End, Hornsby Tottenham, Finsbury Park, Muswell Hill, Hendon, and Hampstead saw that they must fly southward, now the Germans were upon them. Think what it meant to those suburban families of city men. The ruthless destruction of their pretty, long-cherished homes, flight into the turbulent, noisy, distracted, hungry city, and the loss of everything they possessed. 
In most cases the husband was already bearing his part in the defense of the metropolis with gun or with spade, or helping to move heavy masses of material for the construction of the barricades. The wife, however, was compelled to take a last look at all those possessions that she had so fondly called home, lock her front door, and with her children join in those long mournful processions moving ever southward into London, tramping on and on, whither she knew not where. Touching sights were to be seen everywhere in the streets that day. Homeless women, many of them with two or three little ones, were wandering through the less frequented streets, avoiding the main roads with all their crush, excitement, and barricade building, but making their way westward beyond Kensington and Hammersmith, which was now become the outlet of the metropolis. All trains from Charing Cross, Waterloo, London Bridge, Victoria, and Paddington had for the past three days been crowded to excess. Anxious fathers struggled fiercely to obtain places for their wives, mothers, and daughters, sending them away anywhere out of the city which must in a few hours be crushed beneath the iron heel. The southwestern and great western systems carried thousands upon thousands of the wealthier away to Devonshire and Cornwall, as far as possible from the theatre of war. The southeastern and Chatham took people into the already crowded Kentish towns and villages, and the Brighton line carried others into rural Sussex. London overflowed southward and westward, until every village and every town within fifty miles was so full that beds were at a premium, and in various places, notably at Chartham, near Canterbury, at Willsborough, near Ashford, at Lewes, at Robertsbridge, at Goodwood Park, and at Horsham, huge camps were formed, shelter being afforded by poles and rickcloths. Every house, every barn, every school, indeed every place where people could obtain shelter for the night, was crowded to access, mostly by women and children sent south, away from the horrors that it was known must come. Central London grew more turbulent with each hour that passed. There were all sorts of wild rumors, but fortunately the press still preserved a dignified calm. The cabinet were holding a meeting at Bristol, whither the House of Commons and Lords had moved, and all depended upon its issue. It was said that the ministers were divided in their opinions whether we should sue for an ignominious peace or whether the conflict should be continued to the bitter end. Disaster had followed disaster, and iron-throated orators in Hyde and St. James's Park were now shouting, Stop the war! Stop the war! The cry was taken up, but faintly, however, for the blood of Londoners, slow to rise, had now been stirred by seeing their country slowly yet completely crushed by Germany. All the patriotism latent within them was now displayed. The national flag was shown everywhere, and at every point one heard, God save the king, sung lustily. Two gunmakers' shops in the Strand, which had hitherto escaped notice, were shortly after noon broken open, and every available arm and all the ammunition seized. One man, unable to obtain a revolver, snatched half a dozen pairs of steel handcuffs, and cried with grim humor as he held them up, if I can't shoot any of the sausage-eaters, I can at least bag a prisoner or two. The banks, the great jewelers, the diamond merchants, the safe deposit offices, and all who had valuables in their keeping were extremely anxious as to what might happen. 
Below those dark buildings in Lothbury and Lombard Street, behind the black walls of the Bank of England, and below every branch bank all over London, were millions in gold and notes, the wealth of the greatest city the world has ever known. The strong rooms were, for the most part, the strongest that modern engineering could devise, some with various arrangements by which all access was debarred by an inrush of water, but alas, dynamite is a great leveller, and it was felt that not a single strong room in the whole of London could withstand an organized attack by German engineers. A single charge of dynamite would certainly make a breach in concrete upon which a thief might hammer and chip day and night for a month without making much impression. Steel doors must give to blasting force, while the strongest and most complicated locks would also fly to pieces. The directors of most of the banks had met, and an endeavor had been made to cooperate and form a corps of special guards for the principal offices. In fact, a small armed corps was formed, and were on duty day and night in Lothbury, Lombard Street, and the vicinity. Yet what could they do if the Germans swept into London? There was but little to fear from the excited populace themselves, because matters had assumed such a crisis that money was of little use, as there was practically very little to buy. But little food was reaching London from the open ports on the west. It was the enemy that the banks feared, for they knew that the Germans intended to enter and sack the metropolis, just as they had sacked the other towns that had refused to pay the indemnity demanded. Small jewelers had, days ago, removed their stock from their windows and carried it away in unsuspicious-looking bags to safe hiding in the southern and western suburbs, where people for the most part hid their valuable plate, jewelry, etc., beneath a floorboard or buried them in some marked spot in their small gardens. The hospitals were already full of wounded from the various engagements of the past week. The London, St. Thomas, Charing Cross, St. George's, Guy's and Bartholomew's were overflowing, and the surgeons, with patriotic self-denial, were working day and night in an endeavor to cope with the ever-arriving crowd of suffering humanity. The field hospitals away to the northward were also reported full. The exact whereabouts of the enemy was not known. They were, it seemed, everywhere. They had practically overrun the whole country, and the reports from the Midlands and the North showed that the majority of the principal towns had now been occupied. The latest reverses outside London, full and graphic details of which were now being published hourly by the papers, had created an immense sensation. Everywhere people were regretting that Lord Robert's solemn warnings in 1906 had been unheeded, for had we adopted his scheme for universal service, such dire catastrophe could never have occurred. Many had, alas, declared it to be synonymous with conscription, which it certainly was not, and by that foolish argument had prevented the public at large from accepting it as the only means for our salvation as a nation. The repeated warnings had been disregarded, and we had unhappily lived in a fool's paradise in the self-satisfied belief that England could not be successfully invaded. Now, alas, the country had realized the truth when too late. That memorable day, September 20, witnessed exasperated struggles in the northern suburbs of London, passionate and bloody collisions, 
an infantry fire of the defenders overwhelming every attempted assault and a decisive action of the artillery with regard to which arm the superiority of the germans due to their perfect training was apparent a last desperate stand had it appears been made by the defenders on the high ridge northwest of new barnet from southgate to near potter's bar where a terrible fight had taken place but from the very first it was utterly hopeless the british had fought valiantly in defence of london but here again they were outnumbered and after one of the most desperate conflicts in the whole campaign in which our losses were terrible the germans at length had succeeded in entering chipping barnet it was a difficult movement and a fierce contest rendered the more terrible by the burning houses ensued in the streets and away across the low hills southward a struggle full of vicissitudes and alternating successes until at last the fire of the defenders was silenced and hundreds of prisoners fell into the german hands thus the last organized defence of london had been broken and the barricades alone remained the work of the german troops on the lines of communications in essex had for the past week been fraught with danger through one of cavalry the british had been unable to make cavalry raids but on the other hand the difficulty was enhanced by the bands of sharpshooters men of all classes from london who possessed a gun and who could shoot in one or two of the london clubs the suggestion had first been mooted a couple of days after the outbreak of hostilities and it had been quickly taken up by men who were in the habit of shooting game but had not had a military training within three days about two thousand men had formed themselves into bands to take part in the struggle and assist in the defence of london they were practically similar to the front of the franco-german war for they went forth in companies and waged a guerrilla warfare partly before the front and at the flanks of the different armies and partly at the communications at the rear of the germans their position was one of constant peril in face of von kronhelm's proclamation yet the work they did was excellent and only proved that if lord robert's scheme for universal training had been adopted the enemy would never have reached the gates of london with success these brave adventurous spirits together with the legion of frontiersmen made their attacks by surprise from hiding-places or from ambushes their adventures were constantly thrilling ones scattered all over the theatre of war in essex and suffolk and all along the german lines of communication the frontiersmen rarely ventured on an open conflict and frequently changed scene and point of attack within one week their numbers rose to over eight thousand and being well served by the villagers who acted as scouts and spies for them the germans found them very difficult to get at usually they kept their arms concealed in thickets and woods where they would lie in wait for the germans they never came to close quarters but fired at a distance many a smart uhlan fell by their bullets and many a sentry dropped shot by an unknown hand thus they harassed the enemy everywhere at need they concealed their arms and assumed the appearance of inoffensive non-combatants but when caught red-handed the germans gave them short shrift as the bodies now swinging from the telegraph poles on various high roads in essex testified in an attempt to put a stop to the daring actions of the frontiersmen the german authorities and troops along the lines of communication punished the parishes where german soldiers were shot 
or where the destruction of railways and telegraphs had occurred, by levying money contributions, or by burning the villages. The guerrilla war was especially fierce along from Edgware up to Hertford and from Chelmsford down to the Thames. In fact, once commenced, it never ceased. Attacks were always being made upon small patrols, traveling detachments, mails of the field post service, posts or patrols at stations on the lines of communication, while field telegraphs, telephones, and railways were everywhere destroyed. In consequence of the railway being cut at Pitsey, the villages of Pitsey, Bowers Gifford, and Venge had been burned. Because a German patrol had been attacked and destroyed near Orsett, the parish was compelled to pay a heavy indemnity. Upminster, near Romford, Thayton Boy, and Fifield, near High Ongar, had all been burned by the Germans for the same reason, while at the Cherry Tree Inn, near Raynham, five frontiersmen being discovered by Uhlans in a hayloft asleep, were locked in and there burned alive. Dozens were, of course, shot at sight, and dozens more hanged without trial, but they were not to be deterred. They were fighting in defense of London, and around the northern suburbs the patriotic members of the Legion were specially active, though they never showed themselves in large bands. Within London every man who could shoot game was now anxious to join in the fray, and on the day that the news of the last disaster reached the metropolis, hundreds left for the open country out beyond Hendon. The enemy, having broken down the defense at Enfield and cleared the defenders out of the fortified houses, had advanced and occupied the northern ridges of London in a line stretching roughly from Pole Hill, a little to the north of Chingford, across Upper Edmonton, through Tottingham, Hornsby, Highgate, Hampstead, and Willesden, to Twyford Abbey. All the positions had been well reconnoitred, for at grey of dawn the rumbling of artillery had been heard in the streets of those places already mentioned, and soon after sunrise strong batteries were established upon all the available points commanding London. These were at Chingford Green, on the left-hand side of the road opposite the inn at Chingford, on Devonshire Hill, Tottingham, on the hill at Wood Green, in the grounds of Alexandra Palace, on the high ground about Churchyard Bottom Wood, on the edge of Bishop's Wood, Highgate, on Parliament Hill at a spot close to the Oaks on the Hendon Road, at Dallas Hill, and at a point a little north of Wormwood Scrubs, and at Neesden near the railway works. The enemy's chief object was to establish their artillery as near London as possible, for it was known that the range of their guns even from Hampstead, the highest point, 441 feet above London, would not reach into the actual city itself. Meanwhile, at dawn, the German cavalry, infantry, motor infantry, and armored motor cars, the latter mostly thirty-five to forty horsepower Opel Duracs, with three quick-firing guns mounted in each, and bearing the imperial German arms in black, advanced up the various roads leading into London from the north, being met, of course, with a desperate resistance at the barricades. On Haverstock Hill the three Maxims, mounted upon the huge construction across the road, played havoc with the Germans who were at once compelled to fall back, leaving piles of dead and dying in the roadway, where the terrible hail of lead poured out upon the invaders could not be withstood. Two of the German armored motor cars were presently brought into action by the Germans, who replied with a rapid fire, this being continued for a full quarter of an hour 
without result on either side. Then the Germans, finding the defense too strong, again retired into Hampstead, amid the ringing cheers of the valiant men holding that gate of London. The losses of the enemy had been serious, for the whole roadway was now strewn with dead, while beyond the huge wall of paving stones overturned carts and furniture only two men had been killed and one wounded. Across in Finchley Road a struggle equally as fierce was in progress, but a detachment of the enemy, evidently led by some German who had knowledge of the intricate side roads, suddenly appeared in the rear of the barricade and a fierce and bloody hand-to-hand conflict ensued. The defenders, however, stood their ground, and with the aid of some petrol bombs which they held in readiness, they destroyed the venturesome detachment almost to a man, though a number of houses in the vicinity were set on fire, causing a huge conflagration. In Highgate Road the attack was a desperate one, the enraged Londoners fighting valiantly, the men with arms being assisted by the populace themselves. Here again deadly petrol bombs had been distributed, and men and women hurled them against the Germans. Petrol was actually poured from windows upon the heads of the enemy, and tow soaked in paraffin and lit flung in among them, when in an instant whole areas of the streets were ablaze, and the soldiers of the fatherland perished in the roaring flames. Every device to drive back the invader was tried. Though thousands upon thousands had left the northern suburbs, many thousands still remained bent on defending their homes as long as they had breath. The crackle of rifles was incessant, and ever and anon the dull roar of a heavy field gun and the sharp rattle of a maxim mingled with the cheers, yells, and shrieks of victors and vanquished. The scene on every side was awful. Men were fighting for their lives in desperation. Around the barricade in Holloway Road the street ran with blood, while in Kingsland, in Clapton, in Westham, and Canningtown the enemy were making an equally desperate attack and were being repulsed everywhere. London's enraged millions, the Germans were well aware, constituted a grave danger. Any detachments who carried a barricade by assault, as, for instance, they did one in the Hornsby Road near the station, were quickly set upon by the angry mob and simply wiped out of existence. Until nearly noon, desperate conflicts at the barricades continued. The defense was even more effectual than was expected. Yet, had it not been that von Kronhelm, the German generalissimo, had given orders that the troops were not to attempt to advance into London before the populace were cowed, there was no doubt that each barricade could have been taken in the rear by companies avoiding the main roads and proceeding by the side streets. Just before noon, however, it was apparent to von Kronhelm that to storm the barricades would entail enormous losses, so strong were they. The men holding them had now been reinforced in many cases by regular troops who had come in to fight, and a good many guns were now manned by artillerymen. Von Kronhelm had established his headquarters at Jack Straw Castle, from which he could survey the giant city through his field glasses. Below lay the great plain of roofs, spires, and domes, stretching away into the grey mystic distance, where afar rose the twin towers and double arches of the Crystal Palace roof. London, the great London, the capital of the world, lay at his mercy at his feet. The tall, thin-faced general, with the grizzled mustache and the glittering cross at his throat, standing apart from his staff, gazed away in silence and in thought. 
It was his first sight of London, and its gigantic proportions amazed even him. Again he swept the horizon with his glass, and knit his grey brows. He remembered the parting words of his emperor as he backed out of that plainly furnished little private cabinet at Potsdam. You must bombard London and sack it. The pride of those English must be broken at all costs. Go, Kronhelm, go, and may the best of fortune go with you. The sun was at the noon causing the glass roof of the distant crystal palace to gleam. Far down in the grey haze stood Big Ben, the Campanile, and a thousand church spires, all tiny and, from that distance, insignificant. From where he stood the sound of crackling fire at the barricades reached him, and a little behind him a member of his staff was kneeling on the grass with his ear bent to the field telephone. Reports were coming in fast of the desperate resistance in the streets, and these were duly handed to him. He glanced at them, gave a final look at the outstretched city that was the metropolis of the world, and then gave rapid orders for the withdrawal of the troops from the assault of the barricades and the bombardment of London. In a moment the field telegraphs were clicking, the telephone bell was ringing, orders were shouted in German in all direction, and next second, with a deafening roar, one of the howitzers of the battery in the close vicinity to him gave tongue and threw its deadly shell somewhere into St. John's Wood. The reign of death had opened. London was surrounded by a semicircle of fire. The great gun was followed by a hundred others as, at all the batteries among the northern heights, the orders were received. Then, in a few minutes, from the whole line from Chingford to Willesden, roughly about twelve miles, came a hail of the most deadly of modern projectiles directed upon the most populous parts of the metropolis. Though the Germans trained their guns to carry as far as was possible, the zone of fire did not at first, it seemed, extend further south than a line roughly taken from Notting Hill through Bayswater, past Paddington Station, along the Marleybourne and Euston Roads, then up to Highbury, Stoke Newington, Stamford Hill, and Walthamstow. When, however, the great shells began to burst in Holloway, Kentish Town, Camden Town, Kilburn, Kensal Green, and other places lying within the area under fire, a frightful panic ensued. Whole streets were shattered by explosions, and fires were breaking out, the dark clouds of smoke obscuring the sunlit sky. Roaring flames shot up everywhere. Unfortunate men, women, and children were being blown to atoms by the awful projectiles, while others, distracted, sought shelter in any cellar or underground place they could find, while their houses fell about them like packs of cards. The scenes within that zone of terror were indescribable. When Paris had been bombarded years ago, artillery was not at the perfection it now was, and there had been no such high explosive known as in the present day. The great shells that were falling everywhere, on bursting, filled the air with poisonous fumes as well as with deadly fragments. One bursting in a street would wreck the rows of houses on either side and tear a great hole in the ground at the same moment. The fronts of the houses were torn out like paper, the iron railings twisted as though they were wire, and paving stones hurled into the air like straws. Anything and everything offering a mark to the enemy's guns was shattered. St. John's Wood and the houses about Regent's Park suffered seriously. A shell from Hampstead 
falling into the roof of one of the houses near the centre of Sussex Place, burst and shattered nearly all the houses in the row, while another fell in Cumberland Terrace and wrecked a dozen houses in the vicinity. In both cases the houses were mostly empty, for owners and servants had fled southward across the river as soon as it became apparent that the Germans actually intended to bombard. At many parts it made a veil, shells burst with appalling effect. Several of the houses in Elgin Avenue had their fronts torn out, and in one, a block of flats, there was considerable loss of life in the fire that broke out, escape being cut off, owing to the stairs having been demolished by the explosion. Abbey Road, St. John's Wood Road, Acacia Road and Wellington Road were quickly wrecked. In Chalk Farm Road, near the Adelaide, a terrified woman was dashing across the street to seek shelter with a neighbor when a shell burst right in front of her, blowing her to fragments, while in the early stage of the bombardment a shell bursting in the Midland Hotel at St. Pacras caused a fire which in half an hour resulted in the whole hotel and railway terminus being a veritable furnace of flame. Through the roof of King's Cross Station several shells fell and burst close to the departure platform. The whole glass roof was shattered, but beyond that little other material damage resulted. Shots were now falling everywhere, and Londoners were staggered. In dense excited crowds they were flying southwards towards the Thames. Some were caught in the streets in their flight, and were flung down, maimed and dying. The most awful sights were to be witnessed in the open streets, men and women blown out of recognition, with their clothes singed and torn to shreds, and helpless innocent children lying white and dead, their limbs torn away and missing. Euston Station had shared the same fate as St. Pancras, and was blazing furiously, sending up a great column of black smoke that could be seen by all London. So many were the conflagrations now breaking out that it seemed as though the enemy were sending into London shells filled with petrol in order to set the streets aflame. This, indeed, was proved by an eyewitness, who saw a shell fall in Liverpool Road close to the Angel. It burst with a bright red flash, and next second the whole of the roadway and neighboring houses were blazing furiously. Thus the air became black with smoke and dust, and the light of day obscured in northern London. And through that obscurity came those whizzing shells in an incessant hissing stream, each one bursting in these narrow, thickly populated streets, causing havoc indescribable and a loss of life impossible to accurately calculate. Hundreds of people were blown to pieces in the open, but hundreds more were buried beneath the debris of their own cherished homes, now being so ruthlessly destroyed and demolished. On every side was heard the cry, Stop the war! Stop the war! But it was, alas, too late. Too late. Never in the history of the civilized world were there such scenes of reckless slaughter of the innocent and peace-loving as on that never-to-be-forgotten day when von Kronhelm carried out the orders of his imperial master and struck terror into the heart of London's millions. End of chapter 4 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.